Hello and welcome to our webinar, How AI and Humans Can Work Together. I'm Allie McDonald, a senior editor at MIT Sloan Management Review, and I'll be your moderator today. So our speaker today is Ken Goldberg, the William S. Floyd Jr. Distinguished Chair in Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. Our thanks go out to SAS for their sponsorship of this webinar. Ken, we're looking forward to this discussion today. So today we'll be talking about how AI and humans can work together. And to start off, we want to hear from you, our audience. We have a poll question for you to answer. To what degree do you worry about your job being replaced by AI? So we'll give everyone a few moments to respond. And Ken, based off your experience, what is the typical level of automation anxiety like today? Well, I think it's actually huge. I think this is a big problem out there that hasn't been been fully acknowledged that the many of the the top publications are 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 basically promoting what I call singularity sensationalism, which is exaggerating the potentials of AI. And I'll talk about this in, in the um, in the presentation. But I think it's causing a lot of people to get worried. And so I'm curious to see how many people online have a real fear about this, and then how we can address it. Terrific. So it looks like we have some responses. So 3% are very worried. Somewhat worried is 15%. We have a neutral level at 14%. And then it looks like a majority of our audience today is actually not very worried or not at all worried. So I'm, I'm curious to, to see kind of what we're going to find out about what the future of automation looks like. Um, and Ken, I'll let you take it from here. Okay, terrific. Well, that's actually a good sign. So I, I, I appreciate that, that, that people aren't as worried as, um, as they might be, which is great. So let's, let's really jump right in and talk about the, the, this, this general topic of, of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is, the, is, is everywhere today. It's in films, it's in television, and it's been addressed by many of the smartest people in the world. And a, a very consistent theme is that artificial intelligence is getting to this very strong point where it's, a, it's becoming a threat to humanity, an existential threat, according to Elon Musk. I mean, even, even, even Henry Kissinger has weighed in on this topic. He wrote a, a long article in The Atlantic recently. And uh, I must say, I mean, I would not presume to write an article about foreign policy. But this hasn't stopped Henry Kissinger from, from opining at length about artificial intelligence, my field. And I, I, I wanna push back on this. I, a lot of this comes around, the, is centered around a particular term that I think most of you have heard, which is singularity. The idea that there's a, a point in time that will, when AI and robots will ex exceed human capabilities and surpass us and essentially leave us in the dark. And this is, I, I believe, very counterproductive. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fear, it's, it's emphasizing fear and over-dramatizing the potential of AI. And that's what I want to talk about today. So well, let's talk about it in three parts. We're going to start by putting some of this, this broader fear and, and about technology into context. So that will be what isn't new. Then we'll talk about many of the things that are new that, that I, I, I'm very excited about. 
and then how we might prepare for this for this future, how things are going to change in a constructive way. And one thing I think we can all agree on is that technology is advancing today faster than it ever has before. I mean, there's no comparison. If you went back 100 years to the first two decades of the 20th century, I mean, what did they have then? It was incredibly primitive. I mean, well, they did have the automobile. Fair enough. They um, that was a relatively interesting uh, and important in technological innovation. And um, oh, right, the um, the the air travel airplane was invented during that 20-year uh, period. And um, oh, right, Einstein's theory of relativity uh, also completely revolutionized our ideas about about physics and the universe. And actually, if you want to know one technology that's had a radical transformation in our lives that was invented during that 20-year period, the zipper. <laughs> so we've had, what, what I'm trying to say is that uh, 100 years ago, there were dramatic innovations. And it's fair enough that those led to some a number of job losses. So today, we don't see a lot of icemen or elevator operators. Those jobs are gone. That's fair. But what also happened was many new jobs were created. So there were jobs in, in all the, the petroleum industry had to grow up to supply the, the resources, the energy for, for cars and, and automobiles. And then all the infrastructure had to be built for these new vehicles. So there were vast numbers of new jobs that were created to, to, in, in, to replace the jobs that were lost. So I want to say that there's an old fear that technology is somehow going to take over. It's, we, we, it's a pattern that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. I mean, we've worried about this idea of, of, of Prometheus, you know, that we, you know, stealing the fire and that's this hubris and that there's going to be a, a horrible punishment goes up through Pygmalion's story and, of course, Frankenstein. And there's always this recurrent theme that, that technology, if we advance it, it's going to run amok and in some way lead to catastrophe. Now, I want to put that into context because the same thing was said about these three technologies. The technology of the, of the, of the ATM machine, when that came out, people were basically saying, well, this is the end of, of all bank tellers. We'll never have bank tellers. Um, they're all going to lose their jobs. And then when the spreadsheet came out, the same thing was said about accountants. We are, you know, all accountants and bookkeepers will be eliminated. And then the third was in um, barcodes, no more cashiers. Well, 20 years later, after these technologies were introduced, the fact is that we have more bank tellers, more accountants, and more cashiers than we had when they were introduced. Now, why? Because what happened is these technologies actually did affect these fields, but they, what they did was they changed jobs, they changed the nature of the job, but they didn't eliminate the job. They, they freed up bank tellers and accountants and cashiers from doing the very minute and tedious, boring aspects of their, of their work, but allowed them to be more productive. And as a result, they could do other things as well. So bank tellers, as you know, spend a lot of time talking with customers customer relations, helping them understand new products and services that can be available at the bank. And the same is true for accountants. They're able to now visualize different scenarios and walk through things and become much more effective at what they do. 
So I want to put this again into context. The other thing that's happening is we're having a enormous change in our demographics. So the population is aging. We know this. This is not a speculation. It's, a, it's statistically is based on statistics about birth and death rates. And in 1990, this is these numbers are from Japan, but they're similar in the U.S. There were six people working for every retired person. And today it has dropped to the point where very soon it will be only two people working for every retired person. And so this is a dramatic shift where we're going to have to find the resources to support our, our retired, our senior citizens, and we have fewer people available to do work. So rather than people being vastly unemployed, I actually think we're gonna have a shortage of human labor. In other words, there's going to be more jobs out there than we have people to fill them. Now, let's take another example, which is many people are talking about the, this future where all the, 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 the self-driving cars are going to be here any day now. And I want to, I want to put this into some context. I mean, yes, there is, there is some really interesting research being done at many of the institutions and companies around the world that are leading to cars being being more capable. So on freeways, for example, you can stay within lanes and you can take your hands off the wheel for stretch at a stretch at a time. That's really wonderful and that's a big advance. But that doesn't necessarily transfer into environments like this. So in a suburban environment where you have someone driving through a a a, a neighborhood, things are far more complex. There may be construction going on, there's a number of effects like shadows and people standing in the road. Here's, um, imagine a giant robotic truck following this guy. He looks back and he sees this giant truck behind him. He's not happy. And now we come around the corner in this very complicated, narrow environment, and there's a car double parked. I mean, these are kind of phenomena that are, are very, very difficult for autonomous vehicles to navigate. And it's not uncommon. For example, in a city, it's very typical that you'll see a double parked truck and that is requires that you the only way to get around it the only way to make progress is essentially to drive into oncoming traffic and the way we do that is because as humans we navigate we wave our hands we we negotiate with that person and basically say i know i'm breaking the law but i'm going to do this just to get around this truck so the, all those nuances are incredibly complex and, and i don't believe that we're going to see fully self-driving vehicles in these kind of contexts in the next decade, in the next two decades. Actually, I don't see it coming even in the next five decades. In fact, I think we're gonna see much more of, rather than, than these vast hordes of unemployed and angry truck drivers that are being predicted, I actually think we're gonna see a shortage of truck drivers. In other words, we have more jobs, there's more, more trucks that need to be driven by humans than we have um, humans to drive them. So I want to put this in a context. These jobs are not disappearing as rapidly as being predicted. All right, so what is new? Well, many things. There's a, so many new technologies that are, that are very exciting and revolutionary. We have the LIGO, gravity wave detectors. People are talking about Hyperloop, CRISPR, and genetics. There are vast numbers, and one of them is definitely AI. And I want to put this into context, though. I mean, when people talk about AI taking over, uh, essentially dominating humans. I'm not worried about this, and here's why. This is a, a, the, the story that was making headlines where the world's best Go player was, uh, was beaten by a, um, by, by a computer, by a program, very, very sophisticated program developed 
by Google's DeepMind. Now, what's important to know about a game like Go is that it is a perfect information game. So it's complicated, but the board is just a series of ones and zeros. In other words, you can write down the state of the board perfectly and unambiguously with just a string of ones and zeros. Now, the choices of what you move next and how your opponent, opponent will move after that, there's a great number of alternatives, what we call a branching factor. And that's a very, very, very rich branching factor for this game. And so there's a lot of complexity. So we have to do vast amount of searching of down through this tree, through this very, very highly branching tree to be able to consider many different alternatives. But the, and Google and DeepMind have done a number of steps to make this more efficient, partly by distributing the computation among a number of of computers and clusters. The other thing they've done is use the, the particular technique known as deep learning. And we'll come back to this in a minute. But the what's really important to remember is that this is a game. And it's extremely different than these kind of scenarios. So in the real world, we have we have, for example, if we want to have self-driving cars operating in our urban environments or taking care of robots taking care of senior citizens, or working in warehouses, or in operating rooms. These environments are dramatically different than a game. The, the difference is that a game, as I mentioned, is perfect information. You know the state of the world, and the state is fairly simple. In the reality, the state is extremely complex. It's very high dimensional, it changes over time, so it's dynamic. In other words, the world doesn't sit and wait for you to make your move. It's constantly changing in very unpredictable ways. And most importantly, the state of the world is not, we don't, we can't actually measure the state of the world perfectly. There's a fundamental uncertainty. So all these variables, these hundreds of variables that describe the, 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 the real world are uncertain. And all these factors combined together make these scenarios on the right, the real world, far, far more complex than playing a game. So although a computer is now able to play a game better than a human, this doesn't at all mean that a computer is soon going to be able to do these other jobs even as good or better than a human. Now, I work in a lab at Berkeley, as Ali mentioned earlier, and this is my, uh, this is my group. We have, um, this is uh, some of my students. We have actually four postdocs, 12 graduate students, and about 25 undergrads who are working together on projects related to robotics. And one of the things that is we're all excited about is this advance in deep learning. Now you may have seen this, this is an example of a deep learning vision system that's known as YOLO that is able to classify objects in images at superhuman speed. And what it's doing right here is, is basically analyzing a video clip from James Bond movie. And as you can see, it's being able to label objects in that scene in, in real time, in fact, faster than real time. So this is doing this faster than a human could do. And as you can see also, it's not perfect. It's making mistakes and it's missing some false positives, some false negatives, but it's actually pretty good. And what's exciting is how this kind of system is now being adopted by many different companies and 
is being used by Google, by Facebook, by Amazon, by Apple to basically process visual data as it in real time. Now it's been um, it's been very successful, and the other advance that's coming soon is 5G. This is the fifth generation of wireless networks, and you've been hearing about this. It's going to be starting to being rolled out this year, and it's networks that are um, that are going to basically increase the the bandwidth, the amount of communication uh, that data that can be transmitted, but also reducing the latency, the delay between communications. And this is opening up a number of new opportunities. We don't know exactly what it's going to do, but one thing, for example, is it's probably going to improve things like our system like app like Alexa and Google Home. In other words, you'll be able to speak and the responses will be much faster than they are today. Now, this also another factor is in Internet of Things. We're seeing a huge amount of progress. <laughs> that was my Alexa actually responding to my mentioning her name. The um, the uh, Internet of Things is a very exciting set of technologies. This is already starting to appear. Many different devices will appear in many different contexts. Uh oh, that's a phone. Okay. And I want to put this in the context of my own research, which is on um, in robotics. So this is a the cover of a of a story that just appeared in. Um, uh, sorry, I'm going to shut this off. Um, and we are, my students and I are studying the problem of grasping very complex objects. And here's a video of our system uh, in operation. We have a, a robot with two end effectors. There's a gripper and a suction cup. And what it's doing is looking on the left, you're seeing the, the camera image and then it's scanning it with a three-dimensional scanner. And so in the right above, you see the three-dimensional, the point cloud as we call it, or the depth map. And then it's basically analyzing where to pick up these objects by uh, looking, using deep learning and um, applying that to this three-dimensional depth map and finding points, pick points in the scene. What's important to know here is that these, um, the system has never, encountered these objects before. These objects are novel. They weren't part of the, what we call the training set. So we have systems now that are capable of essentially learning from a large number of examples and then generalizing to new objects, to new scenarios, new images, and, in, and being able to perform relatively well on them. So there's some sense in which these learning systems, deep learning, is able to learn a very complex function and then to generalize from past examples to new scenarios. Now, this is coming together in something that we're calling cloud robotics. And this is where the, the robots and mechanical systems are being increasingly connected over the internet to remote resources for, for, to enhance their capabilities. So one example is big data. We have the, the with the cloud robotics, robots, are now able to access lots and lots of resources to obtain images, maps, models, and code remotely. So you may have a very small robot in your home, like a Roomba, but imagine that that, that has a limited amount of memory and computation on board. But that could be connected over a, your Wi-Fi system to the vast amount of computing that's available at a central, at a central data center. 
The same is true for, for being able to do very subtle computations. So for even a robot moving around your house, oftentimes if there's a narrow passage, it needs to make some, do some statistical analysis to be able to figure out how to move through a tight environment. And this can also be done remotely in the cloud. Essentially, you would upload a geometric model of your environment. It would be analyzed in the cloud with stochastic uncertainty, and then the results would be downloaded back to your robot to execute. There's a number of other advantages that the cloud offers, and this is very exciting to, to the field of robotics. It's actually been adapted, adopted, by the way, by um, Amazon. So just two months ago, they announced something called RoboMaker, which is a cloud robotics system that, um, that Amazon now offers and to the public. And Google has also announced a new cloud robotics platform that is scheduled to come out in 2019. Now, in fact, one of the things that's important to keep in mind about this, this set of innovations is that it's not putting all the computation in the cloud or all the computation down at the edge at the robots. What's really exciting is the idea of balancing the computation between these different resources. In fact, there's also a middle layer, sometimes called a gateway layer, where you may have smaller processors, for example, in a in your home or in the neighborhood that can process data um, and, and, and store certain amounts of data without having to go all the way up into the cloud and back. So negotiating and essentially architecting this, this load balancing between computation and memory is, is, a, is an entirely new field. And in fact, what we've been calling it more recently is not, not cloud robotics because it's not all in the cloud, but fog robotics. So the idea is that the fog combines the cloud and the edge. And so the, the, the new idea is how do we think about this entire ecostructure, ecosystem of, of resources, and how do we balance computation and also keep in mind factors like security and privacy. Now I think these, these innovations are going to affect not only the, the field of robotics, but it's going to impact almost every industry in some way. But we also need to keep in mind that there are major advances being made in other countries, in particular China is a very interesting, and we can talk about it during the Q&A, there's not a lot of developments and really important uh, research being done there, and many of our top students are coming out of China today. I also want to note that there is a there, there's real economic impact of this. So I'm on the advisory board of an of a, um, exchange-traded fund. Uh, called Robo Global, and it's been seen that the the field, the, the the number of companies that are working in the fields of robotics have done extremely well over the last few years. Okay, so those are just some sample of what I believe is new, and we can talk more about them after the in, in after the presentation. But now, what I want to address is how we might prepare. So coming back to the this fear about jobs and the these articles that we've been seeing that uh, humans are essentially soon to be obsolete. This is really, I think, extremely important to address because the inequality is one of the, I would believe it is a primary problem of our time. And people want jobs for a variety of reasons. And there is this, the, the result is this automation anxiety, this set of, set of low level or maybe even higher level fears that many of us feel that this, that is, is this, is this phenomenon, this, this, um, this new technology going to essentially grow to a point where it will actually uh, replace us. 
So it could be put in this way, is it, who's right? Musk, who says, Elon Musk, who says that this is an existential threat, that the, that AI is going to essentially replace us very soon, or Zuckerberg, and Zuck, who says that the, we don't have to worry, this is all gonna be great, it's all gonna work in the background and solve all of our problems. Actually, I don't think we can trust either of these gentlemen at this point, but I think it's really important to think about this contrast between these two extremes. And coming back to singularity, again, all this, this um, the, the, the fear can be essentially encapsulated by this word singularity. And I wanna offer instead a new word that is a, what I consider as, a, um, as, a, as an antidote to singularity, and I call it multiplicity. Now, multiplicity is not about this monolithic AI that's gonna come and take over, but in fact, it's about humans and machines working together. Now, another way of characterizing this might be to call it inclusive intelligence. In other words, we're not talking about a AI that's going to be oppressive and exclude us as humans, but something that's actually gonna bring us together in new ways. Another way of, of characterizing this might be thinking about it as AI plus in IA, intelligence amplification. How will these kind of systems, these software advances, in amplify our own skills and abilities. Now, there's something called the ensemble theory, which is a subfield of statistics and machine learning. And there's a part of that which is addressing classification. And many of you are familiar with the idea of decision trees. Now, a decision tree is where you take data and you basically create a tree that's going to classify future data based on past data. And it works really well. But about 20 years ago, a group of researchers at UC Berkeley asked whether or not it would be better to have not just a single tree, but a group of trees, what they called a random forest. And a random forest is where you have many decision trees that are each trained slightly differently, and then you combine the results to come up with the classification for future data. Well, it turns out that this works extremely well, that a random forest is always better than a single decision tree. And you can prove this theoretically, as you can see at the bottom, and it can also be shown empirically, as it's been done in thousands of experiments with real data. What's very important to note here is that, the, that it depends on the diversity of the trees. So this is the diversity factor rho in this equation at the bottom. This turns out to be extremely important because if the trees are not sufficiently diverse, you don't get the effect. So if the trees are very similar, you don't see much advantage. But when the trees have been, are trained in, with, with random noise that causes them to be different in different ways, then when you combine the results together, you get much better performance. And I think this is a really important metaphor for what we can learn from AI and machine learning about human interaction. Because humans also are very diverse. Humans think in very different ways. So Anyone listening here today has a different mixture of skills. Some are good at music, some are good at visual art, some are good at, at, at mathematics, some are good at, at writing and, and, and logic. There's, we all have a, a, a very complex multidimensional set of skills with various strengths and weaknesses. And when we put that together with other people, we get this, this 
this synergy that often happens where you have a group of diverse minds that complement each other in interesting ways. Now, you may have seen this uh, terrific book by Tom Malone from MIT. He calls it Superminds, and it's based on research on what is sometimes called collective intelligence. And what that is, is looking at the idea that if you get a group of people together, even, for example, the group of us today, that we're going to do better at coming up with new ideas than even if we just took the smartest people and put them into a room. And the intuition behind this is that if you just have the smartest people, they often have similar backgrounds and training and they get in very quickly are prone to getting into an echo chamber where they all kind of agree with each other and they overlook really interesting nuances that may come out of left field. So I think this is extremely important and this is something I'm very positive about. I think that AI, for example, can support this kind of cognitive diversity, for example, with new tools to do translation. So Google Translate and other tools like it are now getting to the point where they're able to do a simultaneous translation in, in, in Google Hangout or other online conferencing tools. So in other words, this opens up the door to groups of people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different languages to, to collaborate in new ways. So again, it's the idea that AI is here to, it has the potential to enhance human interaction rather than replacing it. So this comes back to this, to the idea of, the, of multiplicity. Multiplicity is a, is a constructive view of how AI can operate in the future. And an example of it is Wikipedia. Wikipedia, I hope most of you will agree, is a remarkably successful system for managing a vast amount of knowledge in this world. And the way it works is by a vast and very complex infrastructure bringing together a diversity of human minds and essentially organizing them to not, it's not a free-for-all. There's a whole hierarchy of editors who have earned their, their rights and uh, privileges based on their past experience and, and the respect and reputation of others who grant them reputations. And this system is of checks and balances has evolved in a very positive way to be able to manage this, this very daunting task of how do you keep track of all the subjects out there and update them on a regular basis. So what I'm trying to argue for is that it's not us versus the machines. That's the old story, that it's they're coming, they're gonna take over and we've gotta basically fight them with everything we have. But what's much more interesting is the idea of us working with machines in new ways. This is the very exciting potential of technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, that it will enable us to enhance our own skills individually and collectively. Now let's go back 100 years with a quick story about how a technology had actually changed the way we teach and the way we learn. So if we went back to 1910, the big technology at that time was automation on farms. It was steam engines that were coming to, uh, to replace farm workers. And at that time, only 10% of Americans went to high school. It was because most people didn't need to go to high school. They went back to work on the farm. Well, what happened was there was a recognition that there were going to be fewer jobs in these uh, on farms. And so 
number of educators, visionary educators around 1910, started something that they called the high school movement. And the high school movement is really interesting because they started to, and, and often this came out of small towns around America, they started to, to say that we need to develop a new curriculum and build high schools and encourage students to stay through high school to learn the set of skills they would need for a future where they would be working with the working with numbers, with data, and with other people in new ways. So they built high schools all over the country. In fact, this is the high school in my hometown here. And it's, um, I checked and it was built in 1911. Now what's remarkable is that this movement, it was a grassroots movement. They, they, it, and again, it started not in cities, but in small towns all across America. But by 1950, 80% of Americans were going to high school. It's this dramatic change from, from 10% in 1910 to 80% in 1950. I believe it's the single most important and successful social movement in the United States. And almost no one's ever heard of it before. Uh, I actually think it would be a great topic for a, for a film. So I'm hoping there's the filmmakers um, who, will, who will make that film sometime soon. But the idea is that what they were able to do was to transform education based on the technology of their time. And I think the question is, can we do something similar today? So a lot of our education today is still based on the, the principle of conformity. We try and teach kids to follow rules, to color in the lines, to, 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 to be quiet, to, to raise their hand, to do all these things. So those are all important, but there, it's so much about that was about, about this, this idea of obedience and consistency. What's really gonna be increasingly important for the, the future as these tools start to emerge is an emphasis on creativity on the ability of humans to work together in teams such as these girls from Afghanistan who came to a robotics competition in the United States. And this idea of, of emphasizing diversity, diversity, cognitive diversity, diversity in thinking, and the ability to emphasize variety, resilience, innovation. These are very human skills that we don't see and I don't believe we're going to have robots doing or AI systems doing anytime soon. But these are what humans are very good at. And so we need to emphasize these in our schools. And how can we think about changing schools to be able to do that? I think that this idea, not only, by the way, is this limited to schools in, for students in, in, in K through 12 or college, but actually for education at all levels, continuing education and groups of workers uh, and, and even senior citizens to come together and emphasize this aspect of cognitive diversity, how people differ in the way they think, and how we can use new tools and develop new tools to enhance that. So what I've been trying to argue here and in articles that I've been, um, that I've been writing and talks I've been giving is that there's this enormous power in what I call the, the robot-human alliance in, the, in, in this idea of multiplicity. And it leads, in fact, not to a takeover of, uh, of, of, of essentially a wiping out of, of humans, but um, can actually enhance human work, uh, job satisfaction, morale, and, and, and enhance diversity, which is so important in our culture. So these are some of the resources that are out there. And just coming back to this idea of singularity, 
I want to I want for you to keep in mind that this there is an alternative out there that it's much more constructive to think about multiplicity how these new resources can be combined to bring us together in new ways and this is a vision of inclusive intelligence not an artificial intelligence that's going to leave us behind but something that's going to engage us in the future so to summarize the three parts we talked about one what isn't new remember relativity in other words remember that there's been many innovations over the over the centuries technological innovations that have changed the way we work but do not fundamentally wipe out human beings what is new is this idea of cloud robotics and connect the bots in other words how can we start thinking about uh, systems robots and computers connecting in new ways and making taking advantage of resources such as 5g and then how we can prepare is that we should think about we can think not in terms of fear and the idea that these these computers are going to surpass us and dominate us but in fact that they can enhance our abilities individually and collectively so let's multiply our multiplicity thank you Thank you, Ken, for that introduction to this really fascinating topic. Um, this was such a thoughtful um, overview of the things that you're researching right now. Um, so let's continue this discussion into our Q&A with our viewers. We've gotten, we've received a lot of great questions already, um, and we'll be continuing to take questions down. So if you have a question, a reminder that you can submit it through the questions module in the GoToWebinar control panel. Um, and Ken is here to to answer. So Ken, one thing that came up a lot um, in a few different questions, so I'll try to paraphrase and, and combine a bit, the idea of sort of the fear of the skills gap that might exist, um, you know, in terms of this, the skills necessary in the future of work. Um, so how do we reconcile that with the with the point that you've made that a lot of the skills that we will need are ones that we already have creativity things that you know robots and machines can't necessarily replicate so how should people be thinking about skills for jobs in the future of work well here's an example i mean some people have talked about the idea that we, we everybody needs to learn how to code and I, I see the, 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 the rationale behind that, but I also think at the same time, we should, we should remember not to, to do that to the exclusion of the, of the people skills. For example, some have said we should, you know, kids in preschool should be um, actually learning how to code. I, I'm really against this. I think, uh, you know, kids in preschool should be learning how to share. <laughs> that's a really important skill and it's something that that you know you have to learn and it's you, you learn it by interacting with other kids and it's a it's a, it's very important to get um to get comfortable with that um i know a lot of uh, adults who still haven't figured that one out but i think that when we you know coding and and is a very solitary skill you have to basically you have to be very much in your own head when you're when you're coding and it's it, it, it's very consuming. It's very hard to, to to have a conversation while you're coding. So I think that that is an important skill. But if it becomes the thing you do so often that you start to lose your abilities to have conversations, to interact with people, that uh, we have to really be careful about that. So what I want to do is is emphasize that these 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 human skills, the things we actually oftentimes 
really like doing are actually very, very valuable in the future. So rather than fearing that, for example, that, oh, I, I, that, you know, it's really necessary for me to, to, uh, to learn to code, uh, that you can, you can learn some competencies, some, some skills in coding, but what's really important is teamwork, being able to bring people together in a, in a group and engage them and get them excited, uh, balance the, the, the group, draw out the people who haven't been speaking. Those are skills that I think we have a lot of room for improvement. And so I want to emphasize that, that kind of those skills and also our, our ability to brainstorm, to have intuition, to empathize, to, to, to communicate. These are, these are very important skills that we need to be building into our schools and to our training programs at all levels. Great, that's that's really helpful. Um, and that kind of connects a bit to questions we had around collective diversity um, in groups, especially as it relates to organization. So let me, um, let me go back to the question as it was worded because the person I think did a good job of wording this. So um, can you address the possibilities and implications that AI will have within group decision-makings, for example, in choosing company strategic strategic decisions? That's a great one. I mean, we face this all the time, for example, at Berkeley, where we're one of the areas that we really spend a lot of time on is things like admissions and hiring. And these are areas that I think are really, there's a lot of potential for building new tools to help manage those, those, those types of jobs, those aspects those tasks. For example, you, you get many different applicants. There's huge amounts of, of, of heterogeneous uh, forms, resumes, CVs, et cetera, and, and data that you have to manage. And you're trying to make decisions on very nuanced and complex factors. I want to get a great group of students or I want to hire great faculty, but it's also important for me to hire a diverse group of students. And, and faculty. So how do I manage that? In other words, it's not just pick out the, 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 the people under some particular set of objectives, but at the same time, the, when, I, when I make a decision to, to admit someone, I also, that's going to affect my decision on the next person because I want to also create diversity. So managing all that is very, very hard for individuals or even groups of people today. And I think that we could imagine where tools like AI could the AI type of systems could help us manage this by, for example, one, one idea is to strip out, automatically detect and strip out um, elements of applications that may lead to bias. And another is to encourage the uh, consideration of people from diverse backgrounds. And in, in a sense, manage the, this, this very complex decision-making process in a in a constructive way and and actually ali this is a a broader theme i, I want to hope we can talk about for a few minutes here which is how essentially we can think about ai systems as actually having a, a a positive potential in other words how can they improve our 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 ability to do our jobs and here's another example i'll, I'll put out which is um let's consider gps uh things like google maps or Waze. Now, you might argue that that's not AI, but I actually do believe it is. It's, a, it's essentially a distributed, very complex 
multi-user system that is building on lots of prior data and real-time data, combining it together to route um, vehicles. And it's, it's extremely successful. It works really well. That's part of why we don't call it AI. But uh, it's, um, we use it every day. And what it's done is it's actually freed up drivers from a huge amount of cognitive work that they used to have to do to track maps and try to find destinations. So I think many of us can remember not too long ago when you would have this very complex folding map and you're driving across a freeway in a place like uh, Boston or LA and you're trying to decide, figure out what exit you're supposed to get off. And meanwhile, cars are zipping around you. And by the time you arrive at your destination, you're exhausted. You're just incredibly frazzled because you've been trying to, to manage this complexity. But in fact, now, for the most part, we have these, this great tool that just basically guides us and tells us when the, when the exit's coming up, et cetera. And as a result, it's, made, um, it's given us a lot more uh, uh, freedom to be able to think about other things. So now we can spend time on co- podcasts um, or maybe listening to this, uh, this show itself on, uh, on, while we're driving. And I think that that's, um, that's a huge benefit where AI has not replaced drivers. Again, I don't believe that's going to happen, but it's, it's made the process of driving more productive. Great. And I think that that's a wonderful way of sort of explaining the multiplicity, which, which always sort of has this ring of science fiction to it into a concrete example of something that we're doing all the time already in our day-to-day lives. And we're already experiencing the benefits of that. That's right. So, you know, the um, multiplicity is also the idea that, that it's, it's humans, groups of humans working together with groups of machines. And a, a GPS system uh, like Waze is a perfect example of that. I mean, you, you, you have humans providing input, sharing uh, observations and road conditions and traffic that is all collectively combined that allows the system overall to perform extremely well. Another example of this, by the way, is spam, spam filters. About 10 years ago, you may remember there was a real fear that spam was going to basically be a, uh, unstoppable. And there were a lot of concerns. And we did get a lot of spam at that time. But you realize today, you, we really don't even talk about it anymore. It's pretty much been solved. And the reason is, the way it's been solved is that um, systems like Gmail have essentially used a, a form of multiplicity to combine input from many, many humans. So when one person sees something that's suspicious, that is um, an unwanted ad, piece of spam, they flag it. And then immediately the system overall basically takes that into account and allows it to, to basically filter out that spam for all the users. So these kind of systems where you have groups of people collaborating together remotely are, can be extremely, extremely effective. Terrific. And to switch gears just a little bit, we did have some questions come up when you were showing sort of examples of deep learning. And I think the video example that's, that's showing the, the rate of innovation in this, in this area. We did have some questions around sort of what are the differences between deep learning and machine learning, two terms that are kind of thrown around a lot within the larger umbrella of AI. 
And a follow-on question to that we had from someone was, are we even underestimating deep learning at this point? Is is the impact of deep learning something that, you know, might be sort of transformational in a way that things like electricity have been? Right. No, I know some, some of my colleagues, um, you know, that has those kind of terms, the analogy with electricity has been made. The, um, I think it is important to put this into context. So uh, deep learning is one technique of a, of a history of techniques that have been developed for machine learning. So in the 60s, there were a variety of techniques, numerical techniques, to be able to fit data to models. Now models can be anything from, let's just say, a linear model, which is fitting data to a line. And once you can fit the data, if it fits the line fairly well, then you can predict for new X, what will be the um, expected Y. So that's a very, very simple, it's called linear regression. It's actually turned out to work in a lot of cases very well today. But there are more complex problems where a linear regression doesn't work. So now you can talk about nonlinear regression and you can build more complex models. And there's sequences of more and more complex models. The random forests I mentioned earlier have been around for 20 years. They are extremely effective at classifying data and doing predictions. So in fact, when in many cases where in machine learning, it has been shown that random forests are as good as, if not better than deep learning systems. So deep learning is, is, is a new, is, a, is a, the newest category of systems. And it's particularly important to just think of it as a very, very high dimensional function that gets tuned to the examples. And so rather than in a linear system where you have two dimensions, um, a, uh, an, a system for deep learning may have millions, sometimes 20 million variables. And so it can, it's a much richer or more expressive uh, representation. And so it can be tuned, it can learn more complex functions. So another term, instead of calling it deep learning, I sometimes call it hyperparametric function approximation. In other words, you're just approximating a function like linear, like linear regression, but you're doing it with a hyperparametric system with vastly increased number of parameters. And the only way that's been possible today is by the advances in computing, because we now have very, very fast uh, cluster computing and GPU graphical processing computers that are able to, um, to, to, to train such a system and the availability of vast amounts of data. And that is really thanks to the internet and mobile phones. So the network is able to provide the vast numbers of training examples. So that's why the example we showed about the, um, the, the, the image classification from the James Bond movie, that was trained on tens of millions of labeled examples. So it is, this is an example of what's known as supervised deep learning, and it's very, very effective, and it's been, it's been showing remarkable progress in its ability to generalize, but it also has flaws. And so there's a number of, of concerns now that it's not a magic bullet, that it's not going to solve all the problems that we, um, that we, that we encounter as humans. And so I think it's, it's the question, is it, is it underrated? Or in fact, I believe it's slightly overrated for the reasons I mentioned, that for many of the problems in robotics and interacting with the physical world, 
in cars and senior citizens and um, caring for senior citizens or children or in factories or in hospitals, that it is these systems, these environments are so complex that deep learning is not enough to be able to handle the vast amount of uncertainty and, and high dimensionality in the states of those environments. Thanks, Ken. That's really helpful. And I think, um, you know, your, your discussion of sort of, you know, what the limitations are here, what some of the risks are here of maybe overestimating the reach of technology does dovetail into questions we had bubble up. Naturally, any AI discussion, they'll, they'll, there's going to be questions sort of on the risks, the darker sides, implications of, you know, moving towards um, more machine-driven interactions in the future. What is, what is your sort of go-to um, advice or foresight around the guardrails and things that we need to think about when we're, when we're moving towards more human and AI interaction and collaboration? Well, one thing I think we should be worrying about is surveillance. I think that this is actually a big issue and it's something that, uh, that, that, is, that AI can enable. So as, as, as many of you know, there's been these advances in, um, in, in cameras and face recognition that are able to track people in unprecedented ways. So in China, there's the social credit system that's able to basically track people if they're walking through a street and if they jaywalk, they can immediately have their social credit um, basically decreased because they've done you know, something wrong. And this can all be, um, this is now being automated at a vast scale. And I do worry about that. I think that, um, that we should be very careful about violations of uh, intrusions on privacy, that we have to think very carefully about this. The other aspect is on fairness and bias. So an AI system is, an AI system is, 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 is trained on, on past data. So it's doomed to repeat itself. In other words, it's going to, 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 an AI system remembers only the past, so it's doomed to repeat the past. It will repeat and basically uh, make decisions based on past patterns. So when we start to have AI systems that are making decisions about mortgages or parole, these are very, very, I, I would say, very um, dangerous applications for AI. Also in medical, scenarios. I, I want a system that will assist a doctor or a judge or a lawyer or a journalist, but these systems should never be thought of as substitutes. That I, I don't want to ever see a, a, a robotic system performing a surgery or making a decision about a, a cancerous tumor without very careful oversight from humans. So just as the spreadsheet has enhanced the ability of accountants and bookkeepers, the, the new category of image processing systems will enhance the ability of radiologists and doctors. Again, it's not going to replace them, but will make them better at what they do. And I think that future is much more exciting and constructive and inclusive than the, the kind of fears that we're reading about in many of the popular press. Terrific, and that gives us a lot to think on, and I think it, it um, is a nice transition to 
um, our final question of today, which is actually for our audience, um, not for Ken. So we're going to pull the room again uh, on this question we had before. To what degree do you worry about your job being replaced by AI? So we have the same same options. Um, prior, you know, the prior poll showed about, you know, 18 to what was it about 35 percent of the audience being either worried or neutral so there were there was a, a lot of folks who who aren't worried yet but we'll see what we'll see what everyone yeah. thinks and, and hopefully we get hopefully we've reduced the the number um who were worried prior to uh hearing ken's presentation and talking out some of these questions well i hope it hasn't increased people's worries <laughs> but i, I would say um I don't know how many uh, online use Twitter and the, the um, but I my my hashtag there is uh, is at Ken underscore Goldberg, and I'll be oh, really interested if anybody wants to uh, put something out there. I'll be happy to answer questions um, after this uh, discussion. But look, it's it looks like we've actually moved we've, the needle here, so people are have. less worried than they were before. Not at all worried. Great. That's really the best thing we could hope for, which is. I don't want people to be worried. I think there's the, the the converse of this question is how excited are you about AI as something that can actually enhance our ability to do our jobs, our job satisfaction, our morale, and our confidence in our kids and in our future. Agreed. And I really thank you today for uh, your presentation, Ken. And um, that's going to conclude our presentation. So over the next few days, uh, be on the lookout for a feedback survey we'll be sending via email. We greatly appreciate your thoughts and opinions on today's uh, presentation. And please take Ken up, up on his offer about continuing the conversation over on Twitter. So a reminder that an audio recording of this program will be available within three to four business days. And that concludes our program. Thank you for attending. Thank you so much to our presenter, Ken Goldberg, and thank you to our sponsor, SAS. Thank you.